Hi, this is Stephanie Hansen with the Makers of Minnesota podcast. And there are a lot of challenges that are facing food makers as of late. Without sampling, it is hard to get people to try product. And it is getting harder and harder to stand out with grocers and buyers who are really inundated with just trying to keep the stores open. If you are looking for someone to help you get noticed, if you're looking for help with your social media or your social media strategy, or perhaps you have a new product launch and you need some PR, I can help. I work with a team of great freelance professionals and we have launched lots of new products and help restaurants and helped brands get recognized and get noticed in the Twin Cities marketplace. If this is something that interests you, please give us a shout. I'd love to have the opportunity to talk with you about your brand and put a proposal together for you. A lot of times we work with clients and do like a 90-day plan where we help them launch a product. Other times clients need ongoing support throughout the year. If you're finding that this is just the last thing on your to-do list every single day, please give us a shout. We can make a huge difference in a short amount of time in not only increasing your following, but getting influencers to try your products and getting public relations eyes on your brands. Give me a shout at shansenmarketing at gmail.com. This is Stephanie Hansen, and you are listening to the Makers of Minnesota podcast, where we talk to cool people doing cool things. And I'm here today with the founder of Busy Coffee, Alex French. Alex, I feel like you and I have been going back and forth trying to get together for like three years. It does feel like that, doesn't it? Yes. How long has Busy Coffee been started? Because I right away when you started it, I remember us connecting. Well, we we kind of did what a lot of entrepreneurs do, and we started it on the side and didn't really tell anybody about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we probably started making cold brew in 2013, and we kind of danced around it being a company for a while. So we had a bajillion different names. At one point, we were Cause Coffee, and we were Foundation Coffee, and and Busy Coffee became a real thing in 2015 specifically. Um, Andrew and I quit our jobs in September to participate in Accelerator in New York. And so that's kind of really the kickoff date that we like to say. Okay. And you are, um, I, you start with, okay. So busy coffee as I knew it when you started was like shot coffee. Yep. So it was more like an energy type of situation. Yeah. So we, the original thesis of the business back from 2013 was cold brew coffee is awesome. It takes 18 hours to make, and it's kind of a pain in the butt. So mm-hmm. we've always just been of the camp of we're too busy to make cold brew. And so as an entrepreneur, I always like to think that you have to be rigid in the problem you're solving and flexible in the solution. And so we had originally oh, like we had originally started with actually a cold brew coffee concentrate, and it was a 16-ounce bottle. And so we sold that primarily on Amazon. That was in 2015. We left um, our jobs and then launched that in March of 2016. And what we found is, one, making a physical product is extremely expensive. Um, And two, that people were taking our concentrate and literally taking shots of it because they didn't even want to make a cup of coffee. And so what happened is we basically ran out of money. (laughs) <laughs> no one wanted to invest into a one product concentrate business that was sold on the internet. 
And so we said to ourselves, okay, is this in our thesis of people are too busy to make cold brew? Yes. And so we basically went out and raised some some investment dollars to launch a line of coffee shots, which is what you're referencing. And it was essentially a cold brew coffee concentrate in a single serve shot format. So that's that's when we had originally connected and um, that product line does no longer exist. So oh. it, it did not work for us. Um, it's a very difficult category and we learned a ton of lessons about that one. But yeah, that was the original. That's when we pushed really hard was with that mm-hmm. product. So at this point, tell me about what you have found, which products that you have that's working. Yeah. So today we're in the fortunate position where all of them are working which is great. And it took yeah, us a long and- time to get there. And we failed a ton and lost more money than I'd like to admit. So right now we kind of have two primary product lines and sales channels. So we have a line of coarse ground coffee that is for the do-it-yourself consumer. So even though Andrew and I were too busy to make cold brew, there's a very large percentage of the population that drinks cold brew that loves making it themselves. It's just this craft emotional feeling to making the product that you're consuming. So we have that business and that's actually been number one on Amazon for two years now. Wow. Fantastic. We also have ready to drink versions of those same products. So as an example, our smooth and sweet is our number one bestseller on Amazon. That is the exact same as our medium roast bottle that you can find in a Cub Foods, if you will. Um, So we really have kind of our dry coffee online, and then we have our ready-to-drink bottles in grocery. And then we actually still do have a line of our cold brew concentrates, which are shelf-stable that we sell on our website, not Amazon, but it's kind of a fringe product, but there is a a core consumer group that loves it. It's really funny because you're in a couple of different businesses, really, because you're in the beverage business, which is a whole like category. Mm-hmm. Then you're also in the uh, packaged goods category. And that whole Amazon route is a really difficult one to navigate for lots mm-hmm. of people. So you're and then you're kind of in just your own online sales. So you are in kind of like three separate businesses in some ways. Yeah. And we, we were even, you know, early on because the shots failed, we were just kind of like grabbing at anything that was working. And at one point we were even private labeling a cold brew coffee concentrate for a coffee shop chain. So we would make their cold brew, put it into a bag and box, ship it to the stores, and then they would dilute it. So we had a whole separate division of food service and of course, with COVID, that shut down all of the, unfortunately, shut down all of those coffee shops. And so that went to zero immediately. But fortunately, because of the other business channels we had, it wasn't an issue for us. So that's pretty great. You were in some ways COVID proof, as it were, because you already had your Amazon channel already navigated and put together. And you were already working with some of the grocery stores. Has that grocery avenue changed for you as they've gotten so busy and just focused on health and safety of keeping their workers and the product and the supply chains going? Yeah, you know, right away, it was challenging for sure. Because the grocery stores, you know, they all buy products from distributors. And those distributors are focused on keeping the highest velocity items in stock. So this was typically like butter juice, milk. And if you're not butter, juice, or milk, the distributor doesn't care. And so we did have some issues where we would send shipments to distribution centers and they wouldn't even check it in. They wouldn't flow the inventory out to the stores. 
because all that they cared about was keeping the high volume items in stock. So that, that we did have a few challenges. That's no longer the case. And our items have now gotten a little bit higher velocity, especially because we sell cold coffee and it's hot out. So we're kind of one of those higher volume items. So we have been a little bit more prioritized. But yeah, right away, I mean, it was it was a challenge. You know, you couldn't go into the store. We had out of stock issues. We couldn't help anything. Um, it certainly was challenging. Some of my makers that listen to this podcast are experiencing that right now. If you were going to give them advice, you know, they're, they're self-stable things and they're having a hard time getting from their distribution centers back onto the shelves. And customers are looking for them and getting frustrated because things are running out quickly. What would advice be that you would give them to help improve their uh, supply chain? You know, the, the distributor side of it's tough because there's not a lot you can do to move the hand of the distributor. But what we've done is we go into the stores and, you know, of course, there's some health concerns that some would say, well, I'm not comfortable doing that. But at the end of the day, you know, those people that are at the store level that are stocking the shelves, they're there no matter what. And if you as a brand owner go into that store and you talk to them and you say, hey, I'm here to help, what can we do? And if you go back, you know, I'll still go into a grocery store. And if there's no inventory on the shelf, I'm going into the back of that store and I'm talking to whoever's back there. Where's the inventory? And I'm going to go pull that inventory and put it on the shelf myself. And so, you know, it feels like, well, why am I doing this? I shouldn't have to. But at the end of the day, those people really care about the individuals that will help them. And then you can help influence them to place larger orders. And if the distributor is seeing orders coming through for products, they're going to start to prioritize them a little bit more. And so unfortunately, it all starts at the store level. And so we just make sure that we check up on every store. And a lot of a lot of people have made mistakes. And, and we did a ton early on where we were using a broker. And they're like, oh, we go to the store, we check up on things. And we had to get rid of all of our brokers that were, you know, good at store level merchandising. And we just do it ourselves. And we make sure that we know which stores are our high performers. And we go there constantly. We have great relationships with the people that manage the, the, the stock, the inventory levels and yep. setting the shelves. And we just keep going back there. And now they know us. And even things like if we're going to do a promotion, we'll tell them, you know, a week or two in advance that, hey, we got this huge promotion coming up. Any chance we can get like an end cap or a secondary display? And because we go in there and do those things, we've gotten a ton of extra placement just because we go into the store. I mean, we were on the verge of getting kicked out of pretty much every store we were in because of our concentrate line wasn't working that well. Yep. So we did not have a great, I don't want to say great reputation because they liked us, but the product wasn't selling well. And, you know, we were on the verge of getting kicked out. We have a national competitor called Chameleon. And then we just launched a new product and we're in the stores multiple times a week. And then it started to sell. And because of our relationship and going to the store, now we're getting free end caps. We're getting those bunkers. We're getting extra tags. And the people at the store love us because we just went in and said, hey, how can we be helpful? Yep. Yep. That's really good advice. And you sound like you're kind of salesy. So would you say that that was helpful for you too? Maybe finding 
the right person in the organization to make those connections? Yeah, definitely. And generally speaking, I, um, I will manage the kind of the buyer relationship and get us on shelf. And then we actually got um, lucky about 18 months ago, we brought on an intern from the University of St. Thomas and just kind of trained him. And he is someone that is very good at making connections with any type of person and loves because when you go into a store, you're going to see every type of person that's stocking those shelves. Yeah. Be someone that's old, someone that's young, someone that doesn't care, someone that knows the industry. And um, he did a fantastic job of building the relationships from the ground up. And so we do go in and we just ask questions of like, because for us, we sell into the dairy section. So uh-huh. it's like, hey, is there a dairy manager? Yes or no. Who stocks the shelves? Is it the distributor or is it the store level person? Um, and if there's no dairy manager, can we talk to the store manager? And we just try and learn every store because they all operate differently. And then we just kind of take notes, figure out who that person is, and then just maintain those relationships. But yeah, I, I'm certainly on the sales side. And I think at the store level, you you have to be, but you want to make sure that you're a friend to those individuals first before you just try and ask for things. In a relationship like that, where you got lucky enough to find a young, agile, excited person, mm-hmm. would you, like, in terms of compensating that person, would you find a way to maybe compensate them for the more stores they were able to get more product in? Or is it just a straight hourly wage? Because I think that person is a really unique individual if you find them. Yeah, they are very unique. Um, and there's a lot of really hungry and thirsty people that want that type of experience where they may not know um, what career path they want to go, but they just want to learn. And so what we did is he was an unpaid intern. And then he was a paid intern. And then he performed well and we trained him and he screwed up a couple of times, but everyone does. Yeah. Um, and then now he, you know, is an equity holder in the business and um, he has a salary. And so it, we kind of stepped it up to make sure that he was going to be a good fit. And he was a fantastic fit. And as opposed to paying based on how many stores you go into, which may not be the right type of compensation. We want him to be invested in the growth of the company as a whole. And if he has to spend 20 minutes in a store stocking shelves for a, for someone that's not even our product just to build a relationship, we're okay with him doing that um, just because he wants to do what's right for the company. And so that's how we've approached it. I really appreciate that. And I think that is um, not something a lot of entrepreneurs are able to do or do because they're worried about giving up equity. It's not sure how it's going to work. But when you want, I often hear entrepreneurs get so frustrated because the employees don't treat it like it's theirs. Well, the fact is it's not. Mm -hmm. So if you can find ways either creatively or with the right people at the table, they really can help you make or break your business. And no one's going to act like an employee unless they are, right? Because it's not their business. Exactly. And and I think there's, you know, my philosophy is there's really two ways to get someone to work as hard as you, you know, hope that they will. And one, you know, I, I look at the Love Your Melon as a local brand that's just absolutely incredible. And they've done such good work and they're so successful. And it's because they had such a strong mission for people to get behind. And none of them were equity holders in the business, but those employees are working 80 hours a week. Because they just care so much about the mission of the company. 
And so there's that path where you're just so strong in your mission that there's people and they come to you because they're like, I believe this and I want, I I am in, and they will work for free because they believe so strongly. And then the other option is if you're there to just make money, well, then that's what they're going to be there for and compensate them in a way that's going to make them work as hard as possible. Yeah. And if you, because, you know, we've had individuals that weren't invested in the mission that weren't invested in the company's growth, it was a punch in, punch out. They typically don't make it. Yeah. Let's talk about marketing because you are in a crowded space. How do you, you're a small company relatively, you're getting started here in the big picture. You've made marketing mistakes. You probably blew through some cash. Mm-hmm. In those experiences, are there marketing channels that you felt like have really performed for you? Yeah. I mean, the biggest one for us, and I have this kind of fundamental belief is that I want to be where people are searching for what I'm selling. And I think about that in every capacity. So we're on Amazon. We're the best seller. Um, If you have a shelf stable product, there's no better place than Amazon. If you're not on Amazon, get on it immediately because it's the third largest search engine in the world and people are there to buy. And so I think about it very simply, like if I'm going to go sample my product and try and sell it, let's say I'm selling my ready to drink bottle. I'm not going to go to a soccer game and pour a sample to someone that's watching their kid play soccer. They're there to watch their kid play soccer. I'm going to go to a grocery store where someone's there to buy groceries. And so I think about that in every way. So whenever people are searching for products, I want to show up. I want to be where they're actively looking. So the best thing for us that we found, and this is going to be specific to Amazon, and I'll get into the next piece of it, is pay-per-click advertising. Because I want to just be where people are searching. I don't want to try and convince someone to try cold brew coffee. There's people that are looking for cold brew. And I just need to say, hey, try busy. Um, so that hands down has been the most effective marketing that we've done. And you can measure a return on investment. People so- are afraid of it too, because it is expensive. But if you measure the return and you know exactly what percentage of dollar you're getting back, it, cause I, when I did my business and we were a direct mail and printing company, you know, you could, I was competing with, uh, Vistaprint for God's sakes. Mm-hmm. But if I could pay per click and I could get there before they got to Vistaprint, I could get that business in, there was a time period where $80,000 a month was going on our credit cards for people per click advertising, but we knew exactly how many transactions we were going to get. We knew what the value of those transactions Mm -hmm. were. We knew what the net, what our net was on it. Um, Are you high? Did you hire someone for pay per click or did you develop your own system? We we do it ourselves. Um, We don't even use any software. We use a manual. We pull the reports every week and then we upload them into a dashboard that we've created. Yep. Um, But we we do it all ourselves. And, you know, it's shocking to me that people are scared to do paid advertising, specifically on search, but they'll go spend $500 for an influencer to take one picture. Right. Um, And I think, you know, I look at some of the most successful brands because you get caught in the trap of sexiness, especially in the food industry. And, you know, I look at five hour energy, it's a billion dollar brand. And I have like a couple, maybe they have a couple thousand followers on social. They don't do mm-hmm. anything like that. Um, and so, you know, we just strongly believe in doing search. And now we're really doubling down on Instacart too. We finally got set up on the ad platform there and I'm all in. I mean, let's, let's go as fast as we can on Instacart. Cause again, it's all search driven. Yep. And it's totally incremental sales to what my grocery business is, even though it's sold through the grocery store. Um, 
if I'm not there doing an ad to buy that product, that customer is just not even going to consider me where I can now say, okay, I'm paying 50 cents a click. And yeah, 50 cents off of my profit matters for a very low cost item, but I wouldn't have gotten that order otherwise. And it just increases my velocity at the shelf, which gives me a better story to go back to the buyer and say, hey, look, we're investing in Instacart and it's driving sales. And it just increases your velocity, which at the end of the day in the food business, we have to get to scale to really make any money. And so it's just how do we drive more volume? Okay. You mentioned early on that there was a second thing. Um, do you remember what the second thing was before I interrupted you and brought you down yeah, to Paper it, Click Avenue? Yeah, it was going to be the Instacart thing. And and, and it is still on search. Um, but that's really the biggest one. We also do, you know, we we our category is heavily promoted. And so we have a high-low pricing strategy. So we're the premium player in our space, but we promote heavily down to match our competitors' price or beat them in peak season. Um, so that's been really important because in my mind, there's kind of four ways that you can increase your velocity on shelf. And it's price, packaging, merchandising, and um, consumer marketing. So that could be an Instagram influencer or something. And there's, those are really the only four things, right? That's kind of it. And so, you know, we think about all four of those very specifically. And for the listeners, you know, I was at General Mills beforehand. And what they had this huge mural on one of their floors, and it said, "Your package is your number one asset." And so that's a very important one. That's it's difficult because most people aren't designers, um, but it is one thing that is just very, very, very important, and, and it's one of the four. So we always look at that too, um, but we look at those four things very specifically. Uh, did you design your packaging with someone locally? You know, we had um, ultra creative. Um, develop the logos and the typefaces yep. and the fonts. And then I actually made it on PowerPoint. Uh, so I just kind of concepted it and then threw it over the fence to a designer who tweaked it a little bit and then made it print ready. Uh, Ty Tanander, did you work with him directly? I sure did. He's, yeah, yeah, he's fantastic. He really is. And he's done a lot of great packaging and packaged goods products in the Twin Cities. So if yep. anyone's looking for help, He's, uh, he's a great resource. So when you look around at your other makers in the Twin Cities market, you mentioned Love Your Melon was someone that you admired. Mm -hmm. Are there any others? Yeah. Johnny Pops is, you know, they're the best, right? They have a been, really great product. Oh my gosh. Their product is so good. And they're a manufacturer, right? A lot of people will contract manufacturer like Love Your Melon. They don't make the hats. Yeah. Um, but Johnny Pops makes them. And they have their own factory and they're just so professional. You know, we lean on them as much as they'll allow us to. They're so busy. Um, but we try and ask them questions. You know, they'll get back one out of every three. Um, and then it was started. Awesome. Yeah, I've interviewed them uh, on the podcast, I think, gosh, maybe a year and a half ago. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, they were started by a young person who had this great concept and he was able to find some good investors that came on board. And they really do an amazing job of, mm -hmm. they use the influencer market, I think, really smartly. Mm -hmm. um, I think at least twice a year, they literally send me a handwritten note card with a coupon to try the product or a free box and just say, hey, we know that you're in the marketplace and you're an influencer. If you try it, let us know what you think. Like, wow. just something that that touch point for them costs probably, I don't know, a stamp, the coupon. There's probably some shrinkage in there. 
but it just feels so personal. Every time I see their product, I buy it because I'm mm-hmm. so, I want to be such a champion for them. Yeah. They're fantastic in the food space. Um, Seven Sundays is also very yeah. awesome. They're great. Um, I'm and setting then, up an interview with her for the next couple of weeks. Um, oh, great. Yeah. Hannah, yeah. she is, they are so sharp. That is a killer team that they have there. Um, and then Matt Joyce at Tomb. He's also really good. You know, he's is he been... a former General Mills guy? Because that brand has just exploded. No, he's not. He is just a killer. I mean, he is a hustler and he works his tail off. He's been at it for a very long time, though. Um, he's definitely had some challenges, but that's a, a perfect example of resiliency. He faced every food safety challenge that you could ever overcome, and he has. And now they're doing great. Um, so I think he's another really good one. And then. You know, outside of the food space, I think the woodchuck guys are also really awesome. Sure. They, you know, they, especially with what happened during COVID, they were able to pivot their manufacturing to PPE. And that was wildly successful for them. Um, so another just really great group of makers there. Yeah, I've interviewed them too, but it's been a while. I might have to go back and pick up that PPE story because COVID has had an impact on lots of businesses. What has been your experience during COVID? You seem like you're hanging in there and doing okay. Do you have a hard time staying positive? Like, what's your secret sauce to stay alive during COVID? You know, we are we're on the upside. So I know that there's been a lot of businesses that have been challenged and faced adversity. Um, We are very fortunate to be killing it. Um, So as I mentioned, our food service business went to zero, um, which was unfortunate. But we have a laser focus on cold coffee for at-home use. And it actually benefited us greatly when the coffee shops closed and everyone was forced to stay at home. Yep. Because they did pick up new um, consumer behavior patterns. And so we've actually, yeah, we've done very well. So the biggest challenge for us was, you know, pre-COVID when we everything was failing and we didn't know what was working. I mean, we've been at it for five years and we've almost died at, you know, four very specific times. Um, and so, you know, we just... And in those times, it was, you know, Andrew and I, my business partner, we'd just talk each other up, self-talk, keep going at it, eyes on the prize. Um, you know, we'd always have something that was kind of working and we would just stay focused on that. Um, but during COVID, um, you know, we have been doing pretty good, actually. During the not so great times, why didn't you throw in the towel? What was it that kept you going forward? You know, a lot of it was probably ego um, because, again, I was at General Mills and very specifically, I was in their venture capital division. Um, you know, I am an Ironman. I've done ultra endurance races. I have a strong belief that you don't fail until you quit. And so, um, you know, that really drove me to make like my biggest fear in life is failure. Yep. And again, like I know that as long as you don't quit, you will not fail. And so we just you know, my business partner is the same way. So we just kind of kept that uh, top of mind and stayed positive and just kind of kept going. So that was, that was a major piece of it. Um, also, you know, we did raise capital from some friends and family that probably shouldn't have given us money. And the thought of having to see those people and just say that I lost it and not because of, you know, cause we quit. Right. And there's there's always a, a solution. It may not be the best one, but in my mind, you can always break through and, and stay alive. And so we just those two things combined made sure that we were never going to give up. So what does the future hold? Do you 
just pounding what you have? Do you see product expansions? How do you keep from getting bored with what you got? Yeah, so we, I mean, honestly, in the last three weeks, we've launched five new SKUs. And so we basically have our dry product line on the internet and our liquid product line in grocery. So we're expanding. We originally were light roast, medium roast, dark roast. We just launched an espresso blend and, and a breakfast blend. And actually on Monday, we're launching a whole new product format, which is for the do-it-yourselfer, but it's a more convenient solution. Um, so we're always trying to innovate, but we now have very specific guardrails that for us, everything is multi-serve. It's all cold brew specific. Um, down the road, I think we'd love to extend outside of coffee and still stay focused on multi-serve beverages for the at-home user, but you know, venturing out into other um, ingredients other than coffee. I just saw that Starbucks is launching. It looks like almost like a cat food can. Mm-hmm. And it's for your coffee maker because they're probably experiencing people spending more of their coffee time at home. Yep. I thought it was interesting that in the midst of an aluminum crisis or what we're hearing is an aluminum crisis that they're launching a can. I would agree. I think that's an odd product line. I, I did see there's another brand called Blue Bottle Coffee, and they launched literally in a beer can. They launched or a soda can. They launched coffee in there. So it just the, the coffee industry is so packaging focused and price sensitive that you know a lot of what you're seeing now is just packaging innovation, which yeah. adds no value to the consumer, but it gives something fresh to go back to the buyer too. Yeah, I suspect. Well, it's been great to talk to you. I really appreciate uh, your persistence, your perseverance. You've had a lot of good lessons here for makers that listen to the podcast. So I appreciate that. And I wish you guys tons of success. And I, it's good to hear a good, positive happening story during COVID times. I won't lie. It's really nice. Oh, well, thanks so much for having me, Stephanie. And just kind of some parting words for anyone that's in the shelf stable section. Um, I would highly recommend looking at Amazon. I think that's, that's going to get everybody through this. If we can just get our products up online and leverage that search volume. Did you do it yourself, Alex, or did you, I know there's consultants that people can hire? For the initial phase, we did use a consultant. It was an old coworker of mine that launched his own firm. Um, and if anyone wants to reach out to me, Alex at busycoffee.com, I'm, I'm more than happy to help and make the connection. Great. Thanks, Alex. 